This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here is your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Maura Ahrens-Mealy is the founder of the award-winning social impact agency, Women Online, and also founder of The Mission List, a social change influencer database. She's an internet marketer who's been working with Women Online since 1999 when she helped Hillary Clinton log on for her first internet chat. Mora has launched online campaigns for President Obama, Malala Yousafzai, the United Nations, and many other leading figures and organizations. She's also host of the popular podcast, Hiding in the Bathroom, which is the name of her fantastic book, that is, Hiding in the Bathroom, a roadmap to getting out there when you'd rather stay at home. In this conversation, we talk about the narrow view of success that persists in our society and its costs, both financial and human, which have taken their toll on Mora. She rails against the false glorification displayed in what she calls entrepreneurship porn. We explore some middle ground alternatives, like giving ourselves time to breathe, the importance of accepting, acknowledging, and embracing anxiety, and how anxiety can actually be an asset at work because it helps attune us to others' sensitivities. And we discuss the stigma of mental illness, how to be successful on your own terms, and the value in telling your own true story. So now, get set to listen and learn about how to follow your path and not chase others' definitions of success, how to embrace who you are and make it work for you with your flaws revealed and your needs attended to. It's Mora Aaron's Mille. Mora, welcome to the show. Hey, Stu. So glad you're here. Well, I'm such a fan, and I'm so excited to be here. Well, uh, thanks for making the time. But before we, we get into the, the stuff, the meat of the book, Hiding in the Bathroom, which is such a wonderful title, um, <laughs> and, and, the, and the tips that, you've, that you describe in, in, in that a very accessible and readable and useful book um, you know, for, for leaning out while still succeeding in your, your chosen career, women and men, I would suggest – I'd like to just get a little bit of the backstory. What inspired you to write this book? You know, my life. Um, <laughs> time spent having many panic attacks and hiding in many bathrooms um, all over the place, literally from the White House to, like, Wall Street and corporate conference rooms all over. Um, so you mean that literally? Like, I literally mean that. No, I literally mean that. So what, is, what does that mean to hide in the bathroom? Like you're, you're feeling anxious and, and don't want to interact with people, so you just put yourself behind the stall? Yeah, pretty much. 
<laughs> um, it, you know, it's funny because it is it is both an escape valve. You know, I'm sure even people who aren't introverts can relate to that feeling when you walk into, say, a networking event or a cocktail party where you don't really know anyone, you're alone, you're nervous, and you just want to go hide in the bathroom to pass the time, mm. to not be seen. You know, it's 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 sort of this sense of escaping from a an, an anxious making situation, but it's also a little bit of self care. You know, like what's wrong with going and giving yourself a few minutes to breathe? You know, whether or not you have to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. you know, square your shoulders, splash some water on your face, and um, and I have to tell you, I've, I've met some really great people in the bathroom. To be honest, really, so, like who? Um, like who? Bathroom hiders are great people. Oh, you mean well, other people who were there for the same purpose? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, or, or waiting in line at the ladies. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> there's a lot of bonding. I don't know about the men's room, but... Um, Not a lot of bonding, generally speaking. Yeah, yeah. At least in my experience. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, I, I think that hiding in the bathroom has become sort of shorthand for me for self-care when you are the kind of person for whom it's taxing to be out there mm-hmm. in a professional setting. Um, so yeah, so years of hiding in the bathroom. And then also, frankly, um, and you could relate to this, I'm sure, m- more expertly than me, frankly, talking to really ambitious young people and hearing how anxious they feel and how up against it they feel and the feeling that they just never get, no one ever tells them the truth about success. They just tell them to go out there and crush it, you know, which isn't that helpful. Hmm. And, and the part that, that isn't expressed or talked about is what, how would you characterize that? I'm scared. I really don't like meeting all these new people. I'm an introvert. And sometimes after a day at the office, I feel like Superman who's been sucked dry with kryptonite Um, If I pursue my dreams as an entrepreneur, am I guaranteed to fail because I'm not, you know, I like to sleep (laughs) or, you know, I'm, I'm nervous to schmooze. I'm, I'm uncomfortable being a public speaker. And what does this mean? I'm not a natural salesperson. People think a lot of times, and this is a huge myth, that if you're not 100% like gregarious and backslapping, you're wrong for sales or mm-hmm. business development because that's our, a lot of our cultural myths. So, yes, I, I, I can relate to that experience in terms of what I hear from so many people at all levels of their careers, mm-hmm. but, but especially young people, students here at the school and elsewhere, um, who are... You know, perhaps ashamed to admit that there's you know, th- that they're just naturally not inclined to uh, to the kind of outgoing um, attitude that seems to be the model. So did you really did you have some of that yourself? That sense of like, what's wrong with me, or that it was, that you were ashamed of of having this this uh, this different kind of personality that uh, you thought you should have something different. Yeah, and I fought it, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I I insisted that I was an extrovert and I insisted that I wasn't, you know, my nickname in college was grandma, but I sort of fought through it with Wait, grandma? Drinking what? grandma. <laughs> that was because I like to be home by myself, uh, tucked in watching TV. Like I I'm, I'm you like know, but it, knitting in a rocking chair kind of with a little A little bit. Uh-huh. There might be some cats involved. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
I get the picture. So, so they called you grandma, but you you fought against that. Yeah, because who wants to be a grandma, right? Mm-hmm. Successful people aren't 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 you know people who stay at home. Successful people are out there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're fearless. Hmm. We never get tired. We always stay for another round. You know, I, like I could go mm-hmm. on with the uh, with the the cliches, but I think that there is something very much in our success culture mm-hmm. um, that is about being a sort of tireless, super charismatic super extroverted figure. So, Unless you're a Silicon Valley nerd genius, but mm-hmm. I never was going to fit into that. So 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 what happened? You, you something must have changed. I think I grew up at some level, you know. I I I quit many jobs. Mm-hmm. Um I cried in lots of bathrooms, so I hid in bathrooms, but I I still hide in bathrooms, but when I was working in corporate America, I had a pattern where I was I was really good at getting jobs. I did digital marketing both in, in politics and in the consumer realm. And I was good at interviewing and getting jobs because I'm I'm a really good fake extrovert. But a few months in, I would start to cry in the bathroom. I'd get depressed. I, there'd be a cycle. And then what would happen to me, and I don't know if this will be familiar to listeners, is I'd sort of lose my juice at the office because I was so overwhelmed and so anxious and so sad. I didn't have the energy to play politics, to keep networking, to make sure I protected my turf. And I would sort of lose my power and just figure, you know what, I'm going to quit. I'm going to do something new. Maybe I'll be happy then. And I did this like 10 or 11 times. And finally, I just thought... 10 or 11 times? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of jobs. Like before you were 30? Yeah. Hmm. It just wasn't happening. Um, and so I decided to go to grad school and to freelance, you know, I started freelancing to pay for grad school and I did almost the exact kind of work. I did digital marketing, but I did it as a freelancer, not as a vice president of a big department where I had to go defend my turf and schmooze all the time. Mm -hmm. And I was so happy. I would sit in my little, on my kitchen Island in my apartment and be like, Oh my God, this is great. (laughs) How come no one told me this? Hmm. And I realized that I just had to work in a different way. And so how did that then lead you to, to putting this book together? Well, that was 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. I started blogging. I started sort of trying to learn everything I could about something you know a lot about, which is the field of work life and mm-hmm. workplace flexibility and work redesign. I, I called up Ellen Galinsky, who is a, you know, a, such a leader in the field mm-hmm. and at Families and Work Institute. And I said, Ellen, we had been sort of introduced by a friend. I said, I know a lot about social media. You know everything about work life. Can we swap? And we did. And she taught me and introduced me mm. to all these people who were rethinking work. And I marketed her stuff. And it was great. Mm. And that just sort of got me going to think about all these people who were thinking critically about work. And then I started blogging seriously. And through blogging and digital culture, I met people who didn't work or live normal lives. Mm-hmm. Right? They did their own thing and they made good money. And I was like, wow. Yeah. So, so then, how, how did that blossom into hiding in the bathroom? What? So in two thousand, oh, yeah, please, sorry. no, no, no. No, I, I mean, I, I did a lot of blogging and I built my business. Um, 
And then my alma mater, Brown University, asked me to come give a talk to women seniors, mentors, about 250 women. And this was in 2012. And it was so ironic to me because I opened the speech and I said, if you knew me at Brown, you'd never believe I'd be up here today. I frankly spent a lot of time in my room either being really depressed or smoking a lot of pot. Like I was not, you know, like Miss hmm. All-Star <laughs> going to take over the world. That was what my undergraduate days were like many, many, many years before. But <laughs> please continue with your story and then maybe we'll get a little bit of mine in there. <laughs> so, so yes, you, you get up there, you're in front of 250 eager, ambitious, perhaps anxious and afraid uh, brown uh, undergraduate women and their mentors, and it's 2012, and like, what the hell are you doing there anyway? You're grandma. I'm grandma, and I said to them, I told them the truth. I told them about my prescription and non-prescription drug use. I told them about my panic attacks. I told them about quitting all the jobs and the struggles and how I I'm sort of a now an expert professional grandma, and I work at home in my yoga pants three days a week, but the other days I might be doing something fabulous, like you read off all my accolades at the beginning, and I, and I told them how I had evolved my career and how using internet marketing and blogging and smart networking techniques, I sort of hacked together a life that really worked for me. And it might not work for anyone, and I was certainly never going to be a gazillionaire or be on the cover of magazines, but I had found my version of success, and I loved it. And I got a standing ovation. I felt like Oprah. It was like they stood up, and they cheered, and they mobbed me, and they were crying, and it was like this very transformative experience because I feel like I told them the truth, and Mm -hmm. that really just convinced me that I was onto something. Let's stay with that for a minute, this idea of telling the truth uh, and you know, your own story and, and bringing that to them in a way, this audience, that they could understand, relate to, and feel some kind of comfort and inspiration in. How is that a part of what you teach in Hiding in the Bathroom, the idea of uh, understanding your own story and being able to convey it in ways that create value for others? I love that you that you harped on you touched on story because you know when I'm doing marketing work and if you think about good political campaigns they do create a story and they create a personal narrative right mm-hmm. where I can see myself in someone else right and we're going to go on a journey together and it's going to be amazing mm-hmm. and I think that there are so many people out there who are seeking alternate stories and alternate journeys and alternate narratives of success. Like sometimes I feel like we have the sort of eat, pray, love version where, you know, my life, and these are all very first world privileged problems. Like one of the things I I have to be very honest about is this is about my privilege that I have these problems and not other kinds of problems. So I just want to say that. I'm glad you did. And we can come back to that because it is an important one because uh, these, but, but please continue. And, and, uh, yeah. On that. Um, you know, so we have the eat, pray, love narrative, which is a little bit like I, you know, I went and I founded this amazing, you know, alternative lifestyle, and I've never looked back, and I wake up in Hawaii every day. Or we have, you know, this sort of very driven success narrative um, where people have incredible stories, and they may fail along the way, 
but there's always a huge upside, right? Mm -hmm. And I call this entrepreneurship porn, you know, and it, it harkens back to Horatio Alger. It's an American story as old as time, and we love it, and we're, you know, we're addicted to it. And we never sort of get the middle of the road stories where it's like, yeah, I made a lot of compromises, and maybe I didn't make as much money as I wanted to, and, you know, I gave up a lot of things along the way, but I'm, I'm really happy, and I actually get to see my children, and, you know, I don't really like to travel that much, so I get to do this, you know, and we don't really talk about that kind of stuff, you know. We don't, we don't lionize the millions of small mm. business owners who are out there every day, well, pl politicians do in their commercials, um, who are out there making really good livings but not creating unicorns, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I, and I feel like there's a need for that, to show people sort of alternate versions of success and to talk about compromise. Uh, so... Maura, you're talking about uh, an idea that is perhaps counter – well, you're asserting that it is counter to the dominant narrative in American corporate culture. You must hit resistance when you, when you uh, talk about this idea in various, uh, various publics. What, where is the pushback that you get and, and how do you understand it? I mean, I, I think the pushback is twofold, you know, and, and first of all, it's, it's against it's it's sort of the admitting that you might not want to be at work all the time, you know, just really basic things. I'm, I'm sure you've, you've had this conversation over the years where I, I hear this a lot and it sounds it sounds trivial, right? But people say, I would just oh, man, if I could just like work at home one morning a week, I'd be so happy. And, you know, you say to them, well, why can't you? You know, you, you, you have the kind of job where you're digitally connected. Like, I don't understand. Oh, I can't. You know, it would look bad or I've only been at the job a year. You know, there's, there's all this sort of inbuilt stigma around actually asserting yourself and doing what you want at work, especially mm -hmm. when it defies the norms of being like an ideal worker who never wants to leave the office. That's number one. And then I, I think that Anxiety and hesitancy and shyness and fear come into this stuff a lot. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't like to talk about that either um, because it makes us feel weak and we're not supposed to be weak because we're supposed to be, you know, swimming with the sharks. But that is changing. I, I know that many organizations that I work with and I see this in, uh, in student culture, there's a, there's a much greater um, acceptance and indeed embrace of vulnerability, of uh, speaking to that which is, uh, you know, the underside of success, uh, especially in response to, you know, the terrible costs of the intense pressures that people at all ages, but particularly those most vulnerable around, you know, the late teens, early 20s, uh, who were, you know, m many of them are harming themselves or killing themselves because the pressure is too much uh, to be someone who they're not. So th so it is changing. Don't you see, do, do you not see that in your travels and wanderings online? I'm not sure it's changing in terms of our public performance. Mm -hmm. I think that we, there's, let's talk about the teenagers, right? I mean, I have a lot of clients in the space. There's programs, there's parent counseling, there's, you know, mindfulness, there's awareness. But I don't know that it's translating to those top performers who are working harder than ever to get mm -hmm. into the college of their choice. Mm -hmm. I don't know that, you know, men are taking the paternity leave that they profess to want so badly in any greater numbers. 
um, you know, I, I don't know that Americans are actually getting any better at creating and enforcing boundaries around work and life, you know? So I think that we're in, like we are with many things, we're sort of in this transition period. And yes. I think a lot of people are sort of confused, like what mm-hmm. is legit and what is what is not okay to do? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and part of what uh, is really central to the work that I do with total leadership at, with my students and, and in organizations around the world, and there was increasing demand for a model that helps people to see that they can take the initiative to set boundaries that enable them to be healthier and more productive. For example, as you were describing your 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 instance earlier, of, you know, why can't you take a half day? I, I mean, I hear that uh, all the time. Do you hear that? Oh, all the time, you, of course. What do you say to people? What well, what what we do is is help people to identify first what matters most to them, who matters most to them in the different parts of their lives, and then we help them to have real conversations with those people about what they actually need and expect of each other. And what they almost always find is that what other people expect of them is a lot less than what they thought. And so they have a more realistic appraisal of what they can do to be true to themselves and the things that matter to them and the people around them. And they experiment with small steps in a, in a, in a time-bound uh, you know, period in which you try. Well, let's just try this for the next month. I'll, I'm going to work at home on Fridays. And how's that going to go for you, dear boss? If it works out for you in a way that you see an improvement in my performance, well, then we'll keep going. And if it's not working, well, then we'll try something different. Can we try that? And so, right. and you know what's so funny? I'm sure this happens to you. People get back to me and they're like, I asked my boss if I could do it. And you know what happened? They were like, yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. So people have a lot more freedom. Right. It is the pressure. Yeah. They, they have more freedom than they think. And that's why we call this leadership, because it helps them helps people to see that they can take initiative, take action to create the world that they want to be in, in a way that is not selfish. And they don't have to feel so guilty about it. And their anxiety is reduced because they're getting support and buy-in from other people for whom they are making these changes. So she's doing it for her boss as well as for herself and her kids, taking that time. And I want to say one other thing, because it's not necessarily about the kids. I I think that one of the things that I'm struck with, and Mm -hmm. again, talking to younger people, is, you know, I think that the idea of, of, of control over your time and space at work got really mommy tracked along the way. And mm-hmm. it's so aligned with being a working parent. It's so funny. I, I, I always tell this anecdote that if you do a, like a Getty image search for work from home, mm-hmm. <laughs> you will only find pictures of parents with their cute kids on their lap and their laptop. Mm-hmm. That we have like so aligned <laughs> flexible work and parenting, especially mm-hmm. mommyhood, that, I know. That, that now it's sort of inextricable, and that has to change too. Well, Maura, when I started the Total Leadership Program, which I created at Ford Motor Company 20 years ago, we, we called it Total Leadership, Improved Performance and Results at Work mm. and at Home and in your community and for yourself. And the language there, as you can hear, leadership, performance, and results was specifically, deliberately designed to make legitimate and and normal normal the idea that you could you could perform well in the different parts of your life 
and that was for men too. So, so that language was was you know, decidedly male in in its in its orientation, and and that really worked. It made it possible for men to have these kinds of conversations and to pursue these kinds of changes that were about making things better at work and the other parts of their lives. So, yes, yes, of course, that's got to change, well, and we're trying. I remember you said to me that when you first started talking about being a working father mm-hmm. <laughs> years ago, that it felt extremely radical. And um, it's different you know, now. It's different now. I, I think that I think that things have changed tremendously, but I also think that there is a sense of digital culture and competition and speed yes. and anxiety and ambient panic (laughs) that is somehow making it harder for people to draw the boundaries like i i you know there's there's all kinds of data floating around but but i but is my sense especially talking to millennials Mm -hmm. they 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 are they are scared of that and they feel it and that that impacts their ability to take what they need to absolutely Uh, one of the things i do in my course is i require a digital detox so uh, a few weeks into the class i say okay this week you're gonna have to find six hours where you're not online, you're not on any digital device, six waking hours. And they freak out uh, at first, but then they do it. And then afterwards they realize, oh, there are people outside my window. Look at that. I never saw them before. (laughs) You know, I I just finished an op-ed, Stu, that um, lays out in painful detail how much money I have lost by leaving corporate America, Um, which – you know, like with never anything, I've been to hundreds of entrepreneurial powwows and, you know, mm-hmm. start your small business and rock. Kind of, no one ever says, hey, you know what? Like, you're probably not going to fund your 401k and you might lose millions of dollars. Or, you know, did you oh. know that the average small business owner makes $44,000 a year? Um, so, like, I'm super honest about it. I have a lot less money and power than I do probably if I had stayed on my track and been like a senior marketing executive somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's the choice I made. Now, I'm very realistic about money. I talk a lot in the book about knowing your monthly nut, about making sure you can pay your bills, that you're you know, preparing for your future. Like I'm not flippant about money. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want people to think that you can sort of check out of the rat race necessarily and keep all the bennies. Hmm. So what are what are the how do you advise people then in terms of uh, like what are the the best practices that you've been able to glean from your own experience and from your research on how to uh, come to terms with what it is that you really want and how to pursue it and organize your your work and your life accordingly? Um, I started by talking to a financial therapist, which is the best job in the world. Right? <laughs> she is a, a licensed. Uh, a mental health counselor who deals with people's money issues. Hmm. And one of the first things that Amanda Clayman that she advises people to do is to look at all your money, your inflows and your outflows, and make sure that it all has a purpose. That, you know, if you are not mindful and conscious about your money, mm-hmm. you can never make good decisions about what you want to do with your life. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think about it, is incredibly fundamental and incredibly powerful. So obvious. So Right. And yet right. not, like, not, so, not so easy to execute on. So h- how did you use that advice, Maura? I got very serious about what I call my monthly nut. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> which I just, again, is very simple, but it is exactly the amount of money post-tax that you need to have coming in every month to cover your bills, right? And whether you're a small business owner or you work for someone else, you need to know your monthly nut, right? You need to know what kind of choices you can make because you can't make choices until you know what you can pay for and how much you have to earn. Mm -hmm. And this is whether you have student debt or like I do, you have a mortgage and three kids to put through college, right? Like you've got to know what's realistic. And you also have to negotiate that, of course, with your partner, right? Well, that's, yeah. (laughs) Which is a whole other no, it, no, it's not a whole nother. It is the ball that, of wax that we're talking about. So please well, say more. Okay. No, you say more. No, no. Finish, finish your thought about what you took from your financial therapist, and then, then I want to get into uh, what this means in terms of your partnership with your, the other person who is the parent of your child, your children. Well, what I wanted to say is, um, your partner may not be happy with your choices. Mm. And um, (laughs) there's a certain partner in my life who I love dearly and has, you know, has helped me get where I am in every in every meaning. But frankly, probably wishes that I was more, quote, successful and by quote successful. Of course, you mean making more money. Okay. Yes. Yes. Just to (laughs) Uh, clarify. That I hadn't hadn't made some of the choices that I did. Hmm. And that's really an uncomfortable feeling Hmm. in a partnership. And and we can talk about that. And I'm sure you have really good advice about that. Well, I mean, how how do you how do you manage that? Well, you know, it changes um, because for a while, and and this is so. I love to ask couples who've been together a while. You know, where both couple where both partner has worked outside the home. Did you always earn the same amount of money? Did, mm-hmm. Was there a period when one earned more, one earned less? Like we've been together 12 years, and for a while, he earned a lot more than me. Mm-hmm. And now that's changed because. Hmm. Life changes, Um, right? And I and I think that that's really cool too, right? Um, To have that power, but but I but I do think that you know we assume that we're going to take care of ourselves and keep our boundaries, and you know I call myself a hermit entrepreneur and and have this great work life balance, but not everyone in our life, from our spouse to our business partner to our accountant to our parents, Mm. might approve of that. Of course not. And so you got to find ways to to help them see how what you're pursuing is something that they might want as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that or was that you have a kind of a. I'm sorry. That was that was kind of a question. Uh, you know, how do you do that? How do you bring others along with you uh, when you know they might not see at least at first or at second glance that what you're pursuing is something that ultimately is over the long haul is going to be something that that you see as being fruitful for, for, for us, not just me. Well, I think that you have to make sure that you're not doing anything detrimental, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I think that if you're not, you know, if, if, as long as you can sort of pay the bills and keep up whatever end of the bargain, you know, and, and maybe renegotiate that bargain, I think that it's really important for every person to have a set of their non-negotiables, right? That these are the things that I'm willing to give up to make my work life work, mm-hmm. and these are the things I'm not. So that could be taking a vacation. It could be buying new clothes. I know lots of people who I've interviewed who've stopped buying new clothes mm-hmm. for years at a time, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. you know, that's tens of thousands of dollars for most women, Yeah. Um, right? That I am going to commit to five years of this, but mm-hmm. if it's not working, then I promise I'll go back full time, mm-hmm. right? 
that so kind of an I am experiment. going totally like you said with your with your sort of pilot. Mm-hmm. But I but I think that having the conversation and looking at the figures is the first step. Yeah. So so many of us don't bring the cold hard cash into the picture. I never did until a few years ago. And, um, and like I said, then I sort of woke up and realized that I had probably lost millions of dollars in a 401k and hadn't planned for that, even right. though everything worked out and I love my work. Mm-hmm. If someone had said to me 11 years ago, more, here's what you're giving up. Would I have done things differently? I don't know. Maybe you would have found a way to try to stick it out more on your own terms, less under those fluorescent lights. That's right, right. Right. Maybe. And, and I have a great case study of this of a woman who worked on Wall Street, had garnered a lot of seniority and was about to quit. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny. I'm sure you know Callie Yost, right, who's, sure. who's such a, a fantastic thinker. And, and, and she actually counseled this woman and she said, you're going to give up everything that you've worked all these years for over one or two days a week at home? Are you crazy? Mm. Like, go talk to your boss. Your boss doesn't want to lose you. Right. So, so to your point, like, are you going to give it all up or are you going to try to make a small change around the edges? Yeah, that could make a really big difference, especially when it is purposeful and intentionally, you know, understood, conceived and executed with other people buying in. You know, the price they're willing to pay. Is that, is that, I think, go ahead, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I I believe, and this is not scientific, that you sort of are ambitious. I don't think you can wipe it away. Uh, it's it's part of who you are. It's a trait, the same way if you're an introvert or an extrovert. I think that if you can identify what motivates you and how to channel that ambition, and again, what are your non-negotiables? What are you willing to give up? You can right-size your ambition. You know, I think that you could say to yourself, I am driven to start this small business because it is a great product. I know how to do it. But perhaps I'm not going to try to scale it right away. I'm not going to take outside capital right away. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep my my full-time job mm-hmm. and start it part-time right away so that I'm not super stressed out about money and I have a runway. You know what I'm really not willing to give up to fulfill my ambition? Sleep. Okay. So maybe that means I can't do X and Y. Mm-hmm. I think you have to really know yourself and also understand. And this is what mm-hmm. we, we forget. And I think, I don't know about men. I, I know a lot about women and validation is, am I doing this to please someone else or mm-hmm. am I doing this to fulfill my dreams? Mm-hmm. So many people, and I get these letters every single day. I was law review. I'm sitting in my fancy law firm. I got my MBA. I did it. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? This is not my dream. Hmm. You have to know yourself and know what you're willing to give up and know how, if you can have just enough fulfillment of your ambition. <laughs> so let me ask one follow-up on this, uh, and that is uh, what, what's the best method that you could uh, think of uh, or that you've written about and talked about with your clients uh, to help them – Get real about you know what really matters most in terms of the their you know what it is they're striving for in their professional lives. Can I can I actually turn it into something really practical because I, I just think that it's it's important. Please. Um, one of the things that I'm really big on is niche, 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 niche businesses. Mm-hmm. As much as I love to bitch about the pressures of social media, the internet is the best gift for someone who is ambitious but wants to draw boundaries. Mm-hmm. I 
encourage people who are very ambitious and either want professional renown and to jump a level in an organizational career or to be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. to go super focused, super niche, and build an online brand, a professional brand. You don't need to Instagram your breakfast, right? Great website, write blogs, become an authority in your field, and keep it super narrow. My company is called Women Online. It's very niche. We create campaigns that mobilize women for social good. It's what I write about. I mean, I write about women and work, too. It's what I talk about. It's what I spent 20 years building expertise in. And so what it does is it's given me a level of credibility so that if someone searches me online, they Mm -hmm. find all that stuff. Mm -hmm. They know that I'm an expert. I fulfill my ambition by getting to work for fancy clients to do this tiny little piece of their work, Mm -hmm. right? And I get to do it from home. And I don't have to compete against every other PR and marketing firm out there. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, stigma. Um, Mm. As I think you might know, one of my children suffers from a serious mental illness, and I donate profits from all my books to NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, which is an organization that that provides information and support, but also works to to try to cut into the stigma associated with, um, with mental illness, which I think is very much bound up with what you were saying earlier about the culture of success. Uh, so I'm keen to hear what you have to say about what you've learned about, as you say, anxiety can be a gift. Could you, could you say more about that and about how you sort of encounter uh, stigma f- of, about the kinds of things that you speak and, and uh, help people with? Absolutely. And again, I want to say that I I do think that my privilege allows me to talk about my mental illness openly. Mm -hmm. um, And I'm conscious of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Me too. Yeah. Um, So I think that a lot of us think that our anxiety will go away. Uh, And if only we achieve a certain amount of X, Y, and Z, it will definitely go away. But as my therapist said to me years ago, wherever you go, there you are. And um, if you are an anxious person and you're depressive, you're going to be that person probably whether you're the CEO or you're an intern. And the good news is that if you work with anxiety every day and depression, and it's a real part of your life as it is for me and for many millions of Americans, you can actually be in a, in a pretty good relationship and negotiation with it. And it can actually help you create and maintain those boundaries that keep you healthy and in the long game at work. Mm-hmm. You can create structure. You can identify what triggers you at work. I have a wonderful anecdote in my book from a really, really brilliant woman named Christina Wallace who has a pretty significant anxiety disorder that's triggered by certain behaviors. And she noticed that teams at work would trigger her panic anxiety. And she thought, you know what? I got to tell these people. I need to be open about this because they just think that I'm a crazy woman that I'm going off the rails and we're a team. We have to work together. And so she sort of wrote a letter saying, this is what happened in my childhood. I am triggered by these three behaviors. Hmm. And if you act this way, I might act a certain way. And I want you to know why. And can we talk about it? Hmm. Which I think is the bravest and coolest thing ever. Yeah. And so it's about educating the- people about your, who you are and what what you need and how you can contribute best and and helping to create a conversation about 
what you can do to help each other. I, you know, another woman I know who's a really senior executive, she said she just switched her antidepressants and she told the big boss, who's the CEO, she said, look, this other drug, I couldn't be on it. It was making me crazy. So I've now started, I think, Wellbutrin and I might be a little manic and take me as I yeah. am. And, and the thing that I love about it is the attitude of take me as I am. I know myself and this gives me power, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, uh, I have smart boundaries. I know how to take care of myself. I know how to take care of my team. I also have a, a theory and I, and I think this is borne out that the more in touch you are with yourself and introverts, people with social anxiety and people mm-hmm. with anxiety disorders who are super tuned in to themselves and other people are great salespeople. Because we can read other people yeah. and help solve their problems. Yes, more more empathy and sensitivity yeah. to the to the to the trials of uh, of the inner life. More, we are we are fast approaching our time when we have to say farewell. But l- let me just ask you a question. I've been asking everybody on the show this year. Uh, so, in thirty seconds, if you could offer, how do you bring compassion to your working life? I I, I honestly I try to understand that everyone is trying to do the best they can. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I try to remember in parenting as well, <laughs> both for myself and my husband and all the other parents I know and teachers. And, and I think that one of the ways that you can bring compassion is to assume that other people have the best intentions and want to do good just as you do. And we're all just doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. Very important words for us all to be thinking about. Maura, how can people uh, find out more about your work, your book, your podcast, and all the, all the cool stuff you're doing? <laughs> well, they can go to hidinginthebathroom.com, or they can follow me on Twitter at Maura A-M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Maura Uh, Thank you so much for joining me on the conversation tonight. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Stu. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Maura Ahrens-Mealy and that you got some useful ideas about your own life and career. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Maybe you are one of those people who gets nervous at social events, networking activities, or conferences, or maybe even certain times at work and team meetings. Does something at work bring you down, make you anxious, less effective? Would you be more productive and calmer and happier if you could make some small change that gave you some time to breathe, to gather yourself? Perhaps it might involve stepping out, private space somewhere, or coming in later, or leaving earlier, maybe even working on a basis of a different location, maybe from home for certain parts of the week or part of the day. Who would you have to get support from in order to try doing something like that? at work, at home, would it be your boss, your coworkers, your family members? And most importantly, how would they benefit from your benefiting yourself by taking care of yourself in this way? Maybe try talking to them about that. 
What do you discover from those conversations and perhaps from actually trying such an experiment? I would love to hear from you. You can write to me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or on Twitter at Stu Friedman. And if you have ideas for people you'd like to hear me speak with on the show, again, just write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.